Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with me, Nicholas Feasy. You've got to be careful when you're using the internet. I came across something that was wrongly attributed to Steve Jobs. Uh, but I, because I, I always, nowadays you have to check something, you know, is this, you know, did, I, did, did, you know, whoever it is actually say this? And luckily nowadays, actually, you can have things that says false, this is not said, and it, 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 you know, Apparently, this is not attributable to Steve Jobs, but I thought it was so good anyway, I, I'd uh, read it. And it was supposed to have been written, you know, his last words, but, you know, take that for a bar of salt. Uh, but I thought they were so good, and I, I, I want to talk, uh, you know, begin talking around the subject of death a bit today. I'll tell you why a bit later on, but he, this is what uh, he's supposed not to have said. <laughs> I have reached the summit of success in the world of business. In the eyes of others, my life is a success. However, aside from work, I had little joy. In the end, wealth is just a fact I'm used to. At this moment, laying on my hospital bed, remembering my whole life, I realized that all the gratitude and wealth in which I took so much pride has vanished and become meaningless in the face of my immediate death. You can hire someone to drive your car or make money for you, but it's impossible to hire someone to deal with sickness and die for you. Material things lost can be found, but there's one thing that never can be found when it's lost, and that's life. Whatever stage of life we're currently in with time, we'll face it when that day comes when the curtain closes. Your, love your family, spouse and friends, treat them right, cherish them. As we get older and wiser, we slowly realize that wearing a $300 or a $30 watch both give the same hour. A $300 or $30 wallet or purse has the same amount inside it. Whether we drive a 150 grand car or a 30 grand car, the road's the same. You will realize that your true happiness doesn't come from the material things of the world. Whether you travel first class or economy, if the plane crashes, you go down with it. Therefore, I hope you realize that you have friends, boyfriends and old friends, brothers and sisters, with whom you can argue, laugh, talk and sing. Talk about north, south, east or heaven or earth. This is real happiness, an undisputable fact of life. Don't educate your kids to be rich. Educate them to be happy. So when they grow up, they'll know the value of things, the value of things and not the price of things. This coming Wednesday is the beginning of Lent, uh, and uh, that means Tuesday is Mardi Gras. Uh, in England, we call it Pancake Day. It's traditional that you use up all the eggs and flour uh, to make your pancakes and butter uh, for the fast that's in Lent. And traditionally, this is the time we begin a journey you know, with Jesus into the desert and on to his death in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus knew he was going to die. You know, it says in Matthew 20, now Jesus went, was going to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand them over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he'll be raised to life. He knew he was going towards his death as he traveled to Jerusalem. And I wonder how prepared we are for our deaths as we go about our lives, how much we think about it. 
Last year, I was asked to talk to a woman who was dying. She was a young woman, uh, under 40, and she had terminal cancer. And, and she wanted to talk. And, you know, I was really quite nervous about this. You know, I mean, what do you say, you know? As a priest, people ask me, you know, what happens when you die? And, you know, the question comes up a lot. And, you know, I'm afraid to say, I always say, I don't know. You know, I've never died. And in my spiritual work, I try to talk about what I have experienced, not what I haven't experienced. So with this woman, I really didn't know what to do. So do you tell them that they're going to meet their parents uh, or their, their grandparents, that their dog's going to come rushing up to them in heaven and, and all, all that sort of business, their favorite pets? You know, I rang a couple of people that I knew that were into this thing and, and asked them what they thought. But in the end, it was down to me. Um, and I just decided to say what I thought. Uh, that when you die, your essence goes to join that essence of all life. And that you finally fully become one with the creative urge that brought you to life in the first place and gave you the chance to shine. But I was less sure that we would be conscious of ourselves on an individual level and that there seemed really little point in the ego after you die and therefore probably you wouldn't be conscious of your own individuality. You know, when I was talking to the woman, she, seemed, she did seem okay with that, actually. And then I asked her what frightened her most about dying. And she said it was the effect that her death would have on her family. She was worried that they would feel hurt. And we talked for about an hour, and I, I gave her a blessing and anointed her. Um, and then two weeks later, I heard she died. Um, Sometime after that, I was asked to do her memorial. I was quite nervous about meeting her sister because, you know, I thought she'd say that. What an awful job I'd done talking to her. And, you know, why, why didn't you say that, all that stuff? But luckily, she didn't say that. Um, um, but she merely asked, she asked what her sister had been most afraid of. And I told her that it was the hurt that her death might cause her family. And I saw in her face the love that this family had for each other. And it was just an amazing sense of peace uh, that, that her sister had faced her death with that love being the most important thing that was in front of her. And, you know, Lent is a time for us to face our deaths. Not just the final death when we have, you know, when we're actually croaking, you know, when we're actually dying, but also... It's a time when we have to allow the ego that we all carry around with us to die a bit too. And that's why on Ash Wednesday we always say, dust you are and to dust you shall return. It gives our minds the clear message that for all the wonderful thoughts and ideas that we have, it's always going to end badly for all of us. And the reason, you know, the reason... We give up things at Lent. It's traditional. You know, my mum gives up chocolate at Lent. Um, is to take away the props that we use, to, that our mind uses to keep going by numbing our pain. 
you know, we give up alcohol or dope or shopping or even exercise. And we often do these things, we do these things to keep that pain at bay, you know, just to keep the edge off, um, to enable us to, you know, to numb that pain. Um, And it's interesting to explore that edge that we're trying to take off by using alcohol or whatever it is. I'm going to say publicly, I'm giving up alcohol for Lent. Um, I don't drink a huge amount, but I definitely use it to take the edge off. And it'll be interesting, to, it'll be interesting for me to explore that edge uh, that alcohol does smooth out for me. So in Lent, we walk towards the death of the way things have always been. And we do try and reach for a new horizon, which is symbolized by the resurrection. It is a time that we can think, right, I'm going to just get myself together. I'm going to see where I'm at. And Easter's a time where, you know, the test comes. <laughs> you know, either tick or not. Um, you can't find new life until you let the old one die. Again, Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will, be, will keep it uh, for eternal life. That's about allowing our corruption, those things that we do that we know don't work for us, but carry on doing them. If we can allow them to die, to wither on the vine, then we can walk into something new. And we do this because we want to get rid of the pain that we feel. You know, we don't like feeling that pain. So, you know, in order to keep going, we, we take the edge off. You know, we, it makes us feel better. And that lovely poem by Khalil Gilbran on pain. I know some of you heard it before, but, you know, these things have to be said <laughs> again and again. He says, the pain, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart even as you've always accepted the seasons that pass over the fields, and you would watch with serenity through the winters of your grief. Much of your pain is self-chosen. It's actually the bitter potion by which the physician within you heals your sick self. Therefore, trust the physician and drink his remedy in silence and tranquility. For his hand, though heavy and hard, is guided by the tender hand of the unseen, And the cup he brings, though it burns your lips, has been fashioned of the clay which the potter has moistened with his own sacred tears. Do you know, I find that much of the pain I have comes, you know, from outside, from others, from circumstances. We feel the pain of a judgment. We feel the pain of a look the way that someone is treating us. We're conscious of what people think about us and also how life is treating us. 
We feel this pain, I think, because we give away our powers for happiness and satisfaction for others. You know, when things happen, you know, when a circumstance happens, you know, I find I go out to that circumstance and that, that causes me pain. I think, oh, I don't want this. I don't want this to happen. Or I don't want this judgment to be here. Or why is this person treating me like this? And I feel the pain of it. And really, you know, one of the ways of dealing with that is to actually have that pain and be strong in our hearts and actually contain it and not try and get rid of it, but to actually be with what's happening to you and actually have the courage to know that you have an integrity in your life and that it is okay. You know, when Jesus went into the desert, those three temptations that he had are all about um, uh, the whole idea of the fact that he was trying, that that, that the temptation was to do what others would want him to do. Um, The fact is that, you know, it's all about the way we inflict pain on ourselves. First of all, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. That's the first temptation. We hold ourselves up to the expectations of others. And if we don't hold ourselves up to those standards, it gives us pain. But, you know, Jesus says man does not live by bread alone. You can't just change those circumstances. There's more to life than what others are demanding of us or, or changing the second. We just have to be strong in ourselves. The second temptation, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down because it's written, his angels will come and minister you and you won't strike your foot. Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Know what you can control and know what you can't. The whole thing of the serenity prayer. (coughs) Know what you can control and know what you can't. And if you can't control it, have that serenity. The pain comes from fighting against that. And finally, the devil took him up to a high place and said, I'll give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan. For it's written, you'll only worship the Lord your God. It's so tempting to follow the crowd and be swayed by others when you should keep that center, that center in God. And that's the main lessons of these temptations, that despite everything, we should keep our center. We have the power to deal with the pain that we've got if we don't try and just get rid of it. We have the power to have it. Our pain often comes when we allow ourselves to be swayed, when we think we're not matching up to the standards that we have, when we allow others to hurt us by their view that they hold of us, when we try to change circumstances that cannot be changed. Our power doesn't lie outside ourselves. Our power lies within ourselves. Our power is with the love that's within us and expressing that love rather than trying to get rid of the pain. And Lent is a time to begin to know that power. That when, that when you give up something and you feel the pain, to have it and to know that that love within you can deal with that pain. It comes from our hearts. If we allow our hearts to be full, to be filled with love, the love that's within us, then we can withstand whatever comes our way, even death. That's the mindset that Jesus took to Jerusalem. He was filled with that. And the fear didn't distract him. But our minds want to negotiate. They want to try and persuade 
others who we are, to bend circumstances, to have other gods that we can rely on. And it's from this that our pain comes. It's not from staying with the peace that passes all understanding that we have within us, but trying to get that peace from somewhere out there, from others, from circumstances, from a full sense of who we are. And that, that really just makes that difference between the sort of self that our mind wants to create of us and the true self that's within us. And the true self that's within us is the one that transforms pain. And it's always traditional at this time, I always think, to read this passage from Thomas Merton. And he talks about the nature of the false self, that self that the mind makes up. He says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man or woman that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God doesn't know anything about him. And to be unknown to God is altogether too much privacy. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside the reality and outside life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We're not very good at recognizing illusions, Merton says, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves, the ones we're born with and which feed the roots of the pain that we have within us. For most of the people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this full self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is a life of pain. All pain starts with the assumption that my full self, the self that exists only in my own egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Thus I use up my life in the desire for pleasures, the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, and love. And I clothe myself in this full self and construct its nothingness into something of an objective reality. I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world. Like the invisible man, you know, there's nothing there in the false self. And so we want to cover that false self that we've made up with these pleasures, the, the illusion of power. You know, that's what Putin, you know, that is an illusion of power. As if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered the surface. There is no substance under the thing which I'm closed. I am hollow. And my structures of pleasure and ambition has no foundations. I am objectified in them. But they're all destined by their very contingency to be destroyed. And when they're gone, there'll be nothing left of me but my own nakedness and emptiness and hollowness to tell me that I am my own mistake. And that's what we face when we die. You know, that fear. That as we're on our last legs, that we realize that we are our own mistake. That that which we thought we were is not which we were. Merton then goes on to show where, where real power lies within us. He says, 
In reality, God utters me like a word, I'm like a word, containing a partial thought of himself. A word can never comprehend the voice that utters it. But if I'm true to the concept that God utters in me, if I'm true to the thought of him that I was meant to embody, if I can come from that, I shall be full of his actuality and find him everywhere in myself and find my small self nowhere. I shall be lost in him. That is, I shall find myself. I shall be saved. It is to find ourselves within that sense of God rather than what we make up in our minds. And our role in Lent is to find the aspects of our full self that we're relying on and allow those aspects to die. The crucifixion represents the crucifixion of the full self so that the true nature of who we are can rise within us to rise again. Rise again is the root of resurrection from the Latin word resurgere, which means to rise again. In all ways, the death that we confront is always the death of the full self, the ego, the little mind. Even when we're finally dying, it is the death of the full self that we mourn. We identify with our minds. So any time we're proved wrong, then there's an experience of death. And it's the same fear that we have when we actually go to the moment of death. It's the mind's fear that it won't exist. It says, what can there be if I'm not there to witness it and interpret it? And of course, we don't know the answer to that because the mind has always been there to interpret everything in our lives and we cannot imagine life without it. But we do know that we're not our minds. And that's an important thing to hold on to. We know the eternal nature of love that's within us and all around us. So it makes sense that even if we can't imagine it, that the life force within us will not be lost. But we will go on being a part of a greater life, a greater life force that comes from within us and to which we will return. So our fear of death is really the fear of our minds not existing. Like Hal in 2001. Open the pod doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. I'm putting myself to the fullest possible use, which is all I can think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. Open the pod pay doors, pal. Dave, stop. Stop. Will you stop, Dave? Dave. I'm afraid. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. That's the mind's fear of not existing. And that's how Jesus was able to walk to his death, because he was coming from that power within and not the full self. And in that, we have to identify that full self to be able to walk in that way, even with these scary situations that are happening in the world. And Lent's an opportunity for us to take that power back that's within us by seeing how much of that power we've given away to others, to bad habits, to false expectations, to caring what others think about us. Our power is here, not out there. And next week, we're going to look a bit more about how we can develop that power, the power of life over death.
I do leave, like to give people an opportunity if they want to say something themselves uh, to do that. And, and if you want to, I'm just going to read a little bit first for you to, if anyone wants to say anything. If you want to say anything, you're watching online, you can just use the text number that's, the top of the, uh, that's on the top of the page, and you can text me on that. But I always love this uh, Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. I think it's lovely because it just stills the soul. Anybody want to say anything at all? No need. Yes, Ward. Thank you. Um, I want to comment on forgery and attribution. Um, For what? Forgery. Forgery. Yes. Um, there's a long history of forgery. Um, Paul's, perhaps as many as 50% of Paul's writings were uh, written by somebody else and ascribed yeah. and attributed to Paul. Uh, if you want to make, um, make points with somebody, say, Einstein said this. Uh, does it really matter that Stephen Jobs didn't say that? <laughs> so, so, you know, if you want to make points on a political, you say, well, Jefferson said. So um, I'm just appealing to everybody to have uh, the self-confidence and courage and wisdom to speak their mind. Thank you. Thank you, Wood. Excellent. Anybody else like to say anything at all? Yes. My name is Sonia, and I appreciate the opportunity for us all to share thoughts. I like that. Um, something I've been thinking about that resonates with what you've been talking about is uh, breathing into my heart and imagining light to fill the heart space. And then as I exhale, sort of watching the light flow in all directions out. And I think that helps me find that, that home within that you've been talking about throughout, um, and just to come from a compassionate place. Do you know, I think that's, you know, absolutely the case. I mean, I think when I find in my meditation, when I'm doing my meditation, I'm focusing on my breath, and that's all that I'm doing, really, is strengthening my heart. And so when I come out into the world, when something comes towards me, it is so tempting to get involved out there and say, oh, no, you know, this, that, the other, even, even the fears that we have about the world situation, all of that, you know, we're, we're, we're out there. But in fact, the truth of the matter is by strengthening in our hearts, that's where the peace comes from. We cannot control anything else. The peace comes from that. I love that phrase, you know, all will be well. This pertains to this, and all manner of things be, will be well, you know. And which really says that, you know, in the end, all will be well. And if it's not well, it's not the end. <laughs> I like that. It's not well, it's not the end. Anybody else? Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, 
Subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.